0: The Second, Part Five, Chapter Fourteen: The Honest Tradesman. To the eyes of Mister Jeremiah Cruncher, sitting on his stool in Fleet Street with his grisly urchin beside him, a vast number and variety of objects in movement were every day presented. Who could sit upon anything in Fleet Street during the busy hours of the day and not be dazed and deafened by two immense processions? One ever tending westward with the sun, the other ever tending eastward from the sun, both ever tending to the plains beyond the range of red and purple, where the sun goes down. With his straw in his mouth, Mr. Cruncher sat watching the two streams like the heathen Rustic, who has for several centuries been on duty watching one stream, saving that Jerry had no expectation of their ever running dry nor would it have been an expectation of a hopeful kind since a small part of his income was derived from the pilotage of timid women mostly of a full habit and past the middle term of life from Telson's side of the tides to the opposite shore brief as such companionship was in every separate instance mr Cruncher never failed to become so interested in the lady as to express a strong desire to have the honour of drinking her very good health And it was from the gifts bestowed upon him towards the execution of this benevolent purpose that he recruited his finances, as just now observed. Time was when a poet sat upon a stool in a public place and mused in the sight of men. Mr Cruncher, sitting on a stool in a public place, but not being a poet, mused as little as possible, and looked about him. It fell out that he was thus engaged in a season when crowds were few, and belated women few, and when his affairs in general were so unprosperous, as to awaken a strong suspicion in his breast that Mrs. Cruncher must have been floppin' in some pointed manner, when an unusual concourse pouring down Fleet Street, westward, attracted his attention. Looking that way, Mr. Cruncher made out that some kind of funeral was coming along, and that there was a popular objection to this funeral, which engendered uproar. "'Young Jerry!' Said Mister Cruncher, turning to his offspring, "It's a buryin." roar father! cried young Jerry. The young gentleman uttered this exultant sound with mysterious significance. The older gentleman took the cry so ill that he watched his opportunity and smote the young gentleman on the ear. What do you mean? What are you hurrain at? What do you want to convey to your own father, ye you young Rip? "'This boy is getting too many for me,' said Mr. Cruncher, surveying him. "'Him and his hoo Don't let me hear no more of you, or you shall feel some more of me. Do you hear? I won't do it no harm,' young Jerry protested, rubbing his cheek. "'Drop it, then,' said Mr. Cruncher. "'I won't have none of your no-harms. Get a top of that there seat, and look at the crowd.' His son obeyed, and the crowd approached. They were bawling and hissing round a dingy hearse and dingy morning-coach, in which morning-coach there was only one mourner, dressed in the dingy trappings, that were considered essential to the dignity of the position. The position appeared by no means to please him, however, with an increasing rabble surrounding the coach deriding him, making grimaces at him and incessantly groaning and calling out, "'Yah! Spies! Tis! yah Spies!' with many compliments too numerous and forcible to repeat. Funerals had at all times a remarkable attraction for Mr. Cruncher. He always pricked up his senses and became excited when a funeral passed Telson's. Naturally, therefore, a funeral with this uncommon attendance excited him greatly, and he asked of the first man who ran against him. "'What is it, brother? What's it about?' "'I don't know,' said the man. "'Spies! ha Tis! Spies!' He asked another man, "'Who is it?' "'I don't know,' returned the man, clapping his hands to his mouth nevertheless, and vociferating in a surprising heat, and with greatest ardour, "'Spies! Yaha! Tis! Tis! Spies!' At length, a person better informed on the merits of the case, tumbled against him and from this person, he learned that the funeral was the funeral of one Roger Cly. "'Was he a spy?' asked Mr. Cruncher. "'Old Bailey spy,' returned his informant. ha! Tis your old Bailey spies!' "'Why, to be sure,' exclaimed Jerry, recalling the trial at which he had assisted. "'I've seen him. Dead, is he? Dead as mutton,' returned the other, "'and can't be too dead.' "'Have him out of there, spies! Pull him out there, spies!' The idea was so acceptable in the prevalent absence of any idea, that the crowd caught it up with eagerness, and loudly repeating the suggestion to have him out and to pull him out, mobbed the two vehicles so closely that they came to a stop. On the crowds opening the coach doors, the one mourner scuffled out of himself, and was in their hands for a moment but he was so alert, and made such good use of his time, that in another moment he was scouring away up a by-street, after shedding his cloak, hat, long hat-band, white pocket-handkerchief, and other symbolical tears. These the people tore to pieces, and scattered far and wide with great enjoyment, while the tradesmen hurriedly shut up their shops, for a crowd in those times stopped at nothing, and was a monster much dreaded. They had already got the length of opening the hearse to take the coffin out, when some brighter genius proposed instead its being escorted to its destination, amidst general rejoicing. Practical suggestions being much needed, this suggestion, too, was received with acclamation, and the coach was immediately filled with eight inside and a dozen out, while as many people got on the roof of the hearse, as could by any exercise of ingenuity stick upon it. Among the first of these volunteers was Jerry Cruncher himself, who modestly concealed his spiky head from the observation of Tellson's, in the further corner of the morning-coach. The officiating undertakers made some protest against these changes in the ceremonies, but the river being alarmingly near, and several voices remarking on the efficacy of cold immersion in bringing refractory members of the profession to reason, the protest was faint and brief. The remodelled procession started, with a chimney-sweep driving the hearse, advised by the regular driver, who was perched beside him under close inspection for the purpose, and with a pie-man, who also attended by his cabinet minister, driving the morning coach. A bear leader, a popular street character of the time, was impressed as an additional ornament, before the cavalcade had gone far down the strand, and his bear, who was black and very mangy, gave quite an undertaking air to that part of the procession in which he walked. Thus, with beer-drinking, pipe-smoking, song-roaring, and infinite caricaturing of woe, the disorderly procession went its way, recruiting at every step, and all the shops shutting up before it. Its destination was the old church of St. Pancras, far off in the fields. It got there in course of time insisted on pouring into the burial-ground, finally, accomplished the interment of the deceased Roger Cly in its own way, and highly to its own satisfaction. The dead man disposed of, and the crowd being under the necessity of providing some other entertainment for itself, another, brighter genius, or perhaps the same, conceived the humour of impeaching casual passers-by as Old Bailey spies, and raking vengeance on them chase was given to some scores of inoffensive persons who had never been near the old bailey in their lives in the realisation of this fancy and they were roughly hustled and maltreated the transition to the sport of window-breaking and thence to the plundering of public-houses was easy and natural at last after several hours when sundry summer-houses had been pulled down and some area railings had been torn up to arm the more belligerent spirits A rumour got about that the guards were coming. Before this rumour, the crowd gradually melted away, and perhaps the guards came, and perhaps they never came, and this was the usual progress of a mob. Mr Cruncher did not assist at the closing sports, but had remained behind in the churchyard to confer and condole with the undertakers. The place had a soothing influence on him. He procured a pipe from a neighbouring public-house and smoked it. Looking in at the railings and maturely considering the spot, Jerry said, "Mr. Cruncher, apostrophizing himself in his usual way, you see that there cly that day, and you see with your own eyes that he was a young and a straight maiden, having smoked his pipe out and ruminated a little longer, he turned himself about that he might appear before the hour of closing on his station at Telson's whether his meditations on mortality had touched his liver, or whether his general health had been previously at all amiss, or whether he desired to show a little attention to an eminent man, is not so much to the purpose as that he made a short call upon his medical adviser, a distinguished surgeon, on his way back. Young Jerry relieved his father with dutiful interest, and reported no job in his absence. The bank closed, the ancient clerks came out, The usual watch was set, and Mr. Cruncher and his son went home to tea. "'Now, I tell you where it is,' said Mr. Cruncher to his wife, on entering. "'If, as a honest tradesman, my ventures goes wrong to-night, I shall make sure that you've been praying again me, and I shall work you for it just the same as if I seen you do it.' The dejected Mrs. Cruncher shook her head. "'You're at it afore my face,' said Mr. Cruncher, with signs of angry apprehension. "'I am saying nothing.' "'Well, then, don't meditate nothing. You might as well flop as meditate. You may as well go again me one way as another. Drop it altogether.' "'Yes, Jerry?' "'Yes, Jerry,' repeated Mr. Cruncher, sitting down to tea. "'Ah, it is yes, Jerry. That's about it.' "'You may say yes, Jerry.' Mr. Cruncher had no particular meaning in these sulky corroborations, but made use of them, as people not unfrequently do, to express general ironical dissatisfaction. "'You and your yes, Jerry,' said Mr. Cruncher, taking a bite out of his bread and butter, and seeming to help it down with a large invisible oyster out of his saucer. "'Ah, I think so. I believe you.' You are going out to-night?" asked his decent wife, when he took another bite. Yes, I am. May I go with you, father? asked his son, briskly. No, you mayn't. I'm a-going, as your mother knows, a-fishing. That's where I'm going to, gone a-fishing. Your fishing rod gets rather rusty, don't it, father? Never you mind. Shall you bring any fish home, father? if i don't you'll have short commons to-morrow returned that gentleman shaking his head that's questions enough for you i ain't a-goin out till you been long abed he devoted himself during the remainder of the evening to keeping a most vigilant watch on mrs cruncher and sullenly holding her in conversation that she might be prevented from meditating any petitions to his disadvantage with this view he urged his son to hold her in conversation also and led the unfortunate woman a hard life by dwelling on causes of complaint he could bring against her, rather than he would leave her for a moment to her own reflections. The devoutest person could have rendered no greater homage to the efficacy of an honest prayer than he did in this distrust of his wife. It was as if a professed unbeliever in ghosts should be frightened by a ghost story. "'And mind you,' said Mr. Cruncher, "'no games to-morrow.' If I, as a honest tradesman, succeed in providing a jinty of meat or two, none of your are not touching to it, and sticking to bread. If I, as a honest tradesman, am able to provide a little beer, none of your are you declaring on water. When you go to Rome, do as Rome does. Rome will be a ugly customer to you if you don't. I'm your Rome, you know." then he began grumbling again with your flying into the face of your own whittles and drink i don't know how scarce you might make the whittles and drink here eh, by your flopping tricks and your unfeeling conduct look at your boy he is your nady. He? he's as thin as a lath do you call yourself a mother and not know that a mother's first duty is to blow her boy out this touched young jerry on a tender place who adjured his mother to perform her first duty, and whatever else she did or neglected, above all things, to lay especial stress on the discharge of that maternal function so affectingly and delicately indicated by his other parent. Thus the evening wore away with the Cruncher family, until young Jerry was ordered to go to bed, and his mother, laid under similar injunctions, obeyed them. Mr. Cruncher beguiled the earlier watches of the night with solitary pipes, and did not start upon his excursion until nearly one o'clock. Towards that small and ghostly hour, he rose up from his chair, took a key out of his pocket, opened a locked cupboard, and brought forth a sack, a crowbar of convenient size, a rope and chain, and other fishing-tackle of that nature. Disposing these articles about him in skilful manner, he bestowed a parting defiance on mrs Cruncher, extinguished the light, and went out. Young Jerry, who had only made a feint of undressing when he went to bed, was not long after his father. Under cover of the darkness he followed out of the room, followed down the stairs, followed down the court, followed out into the streets. He was in no uneasiness concerning his getting into the house again, for it was full of lodgers, and the door stood ajar all night. Impelled by a laudable ambition to study the arts and mystery of his father's honest calling, young Jerry, keeping as close to house-fronts, walls, and doorways as his eyes were close to one another, held his honoured parents in view. The honoured parent steering northward had not gone far, when he was joined by another disciple of Isaac Walton, and the two trudged on together. Within half an hour from the first starting, they were beyond the winking lamps, and the more than winking watchman, and were out upon a lonely road. Another fisherman was picked up here, and that so silently, that if young Jerry had been superstitious, he might have supposed the second follower of the gentle craft to have, all of a sudden, split himself into two. The three went on, and young Jerry went on, until the three stopped under a bank overhanging the road. Upon the top of the bank was a low brick wall, surmounted by an iron railing. In the shadow of bank and wall the three turned out of the road, and up a blind lane, of which the wall, there risen to some eight or ten feet high, formed one side. Crouching down in a corner, peeping up the lane, the next object that young Jerry saw, was the form of his honoured parent, pretty well defined against a watery and clouded moon, nimbly scaling an iron gate. He was soon over, and then the second fisherman got over, and then the third. They all dropped softly on the ground within the gate, and lay there a little, listening, perhaps. Then they moved away on their hands and knees. It was now young Jerry's turn to approach the gate, which he did, holding his breath. Crouching down in a corner there, and looking in, he made out the three fishermen creeping through some rank grass and all the gravestones in the churchyard. It was a large churchyard they were in, looking on like ghosts in white, while the church-tower itself looked on like the ghost of a monstrous giant. They did not creep far, before they stopped and stood upright. And then they began to fish. They fished with a spade at first. Presently, the honoured parent appeared to be adjusting some instrument, like a great corkscrew, Whatever tools they worked with, they worked hard, until the awful striking of the church clock so terrified young Jerry, that he made off, with his hair as stiff as his father's. But his long-cherished desire to know more about these matters, not only stopped him in his running away, but lured him back again. They were still fishing, perseveringly, when he peeped in at the gate for the second time. But now they seemed to have got a bite there was a screwing and complaining sound down below, and their bent figures were strained as if by a weight. By slow degrees the weight broke away, the earth upon it, and came to the surface. Young Jerry very well knew what it would be, but when he saw it, and saw his honoured parent about to wrench it open, he was so frightened, being new to the sight, that he made off again, and never stopped until he had run a mile or more. He would not have stopped then for anything less necessary than breath, it being a spectral sort of race that he ran, and one highly desirable to get to the end of. He had a strong idea that the coffin he had seen was running after him, and pictured as hopping on behind him, bolt upright, upon its narrow end, always on the point of overtaking him and hopping on at his side, perhaps taking his arm, it was a pursuer to shun. It was an inconsistent and ubiquitous fiend, too, for while it was making the whole night behind him dreadful, he darted out into the roadway to avoid dark alleys, fearful of its coming hopping out of them like a dropsical boy's kite without tail and wings. It hid in doorways, too, rubbing its horrible shoulders against doors, and drawing them up to its ears as if it were laughing. It got into shadows on the road, and lay cunningly on its back to trip him up. All this time it was incessantly hopping on behind and gaining on him, so that when the boy got to his own door, he had reason for being half dead. And even then it would not leave him, but followed him upstairs, with a bump on every stair, scrambled into bed with him, and bumped down, dead and heavy, on his breast, when he fell asleep. From his oppressed slumber, young Jerry, in his closet, was awakened after daybreak, and before sunrise, by the presence of his father in the family room. Something had gone wrong with him—at least, so young Jerry inferred, from the circumstance of his holding Mrs. Cruncher by the ears, and knocking the back of her head against the headboard of the bed. "'I told you I would,' said Mr. Cruncher, and I did. "'Jerry! Jerry! Jerry!' his wife implored, "'You oppose yourself to the profit of the business." said jerry and me and my partners suffer you was to honour and obey why the devil don't you i try to be a good wife jerry the poor woman protested with tears is it being a good wife to oppose your husband's business is it honouring your husband to dishonour his business is it obeying your husband to disobey him on the vital subject of his business you hadn't taken to the dreadful business, then, Jerry. "'It's enough for you,' retorted Mr. Cruncher, "'to be the wife of a honest tradesman, and not to occupy your female mind with calculations when he took to his trade and when he didn't. A honouring and obeying wife will let his trade alone altogether. Call yourself a religious woman. If you're a religious woman, give me a irreligious one.' you have no more natural sense of duty than the better this here Thames River has of a pile. And similarly, it must be knocked into you." The altercation was conducted in a low tone of voice, and terminated in the honest tradesman's kicking off his clay-soiled boots, and lying down at his length on the floor. After taking a timid peep at him, lying on his back, with his rusty hands under his head for a pillow, His son lay down too, and fell asleep again. There was no fish for breakfast, and not much of anything else. Mr. Cruncher was out of spirits, and out of temper, and kept an iron pot-lid by him as a projectile for the correction of Mrs. Cruncher, in case he should observe any symptoms of her saying grace. He was brushed and washed at the usual hour, and set off with his son to pursue his ostensible calling. Young Jerry, walking with the stool under his arm at his father's side, along sunny and crowded Fleet Street, was a very different young Jerry from him of the previous night, running home through darkness and solitude from his grim pursuer. His cunning was fresh with the day, and his qualms were gone with the night, in which particulars it is not improbable that he had compeers in Fleet Street and the City of London, that fine morning. "'Father,' said young Jerry, as they walked along, Taking care to keep at arm's length and to have the stool well between them. What's a resurrection, man? Mr. Cruncher came to a stop on the pavement before he answered. How should I know? I thought you knowed everything, father, said the artless boy. Hmm well, returned Mr. Cruncher, going on again and lifting off his hat to give his spikes free play. He's a, a, a tradesman. What's his goods, father? asked the brisk young jerry. "'His goods,' said Mr. Cruncher, turning it over in his mind, "'is a branch of scientific goods. Persons' bodies, ain't it, father?' asked the lively boy. "I "'I believe it is something of that sort,' said Mr. Cruncher. "'Oh, father, I should so like to be a resurrection man when I'm quite grown up.' Mr. Cruncher was soothed. But shook his head in a dubious and moral way. Uh, it depends upon how you develop your talents. Be careful to develop your talents, and never to say no more than you can help to nobody, and there's no telling at the present time what you may not come to be fit for. As young Jerry, thus encouraged, went on a few yards in advance to plant the stool in the shadow of the bar, Mr Cruncher added to himself, Jerry you honest tradesman, there's hopes what that boy will yet be a blessing to you, and a recompense to you for his mother." CHAPTER Fifteen, KNITTING There had been earlier drinking than usual in the wine-shop of Monsieur Defarge. As early as six o'clock in the morning, sallow faces, peeping through its barred windows, had descried other faces within, bending over measures of wine. M. Defarge sold a very thin wine at the best of times, but it would seem to have been an unusually thin wine that he sold at this time—a sour wine, moreover, or a souring, for its influence on the mood of those who drank it was to make them gloomy. No vivacious Bacchanalian flame leaped out of the pressed grape of M. Defarge, but a smouldering fire that burnt in the dark lay hidden in the dregs of it. This had been the third morning in succession, on which there had been early drinking at the wine-shop of Monsieur Defarge. It had begun on Monday, and here was Wednesday come. There had been more of early brooding than drinking, for many men had listened, and whispered, and slunk about there from the time of the opening of the door, who could not have laid a piece of money on the counter to save their souls. Those were to the full as interested in the place, however as if they could have commanded whole barrels of wine, and they glided from seat to seat, and from corner to corner, swallowing talk in lieu of drink, with greedy looks. Notwithstanding an unusual flow of company, the master of the wine-shop was not visible. He was not missed, for nobody who crossed the threshold looked for him, nobody asked for him, nobody wondered to see only Madame Defarge in her seat, presiding over the distribution of wine with a bowl of battered small coins before her, as much defaced and beaten out of their original impress as the small coinage of humanity from whose ragged pockets they had come. A suspended interest and a prevalent absence of mind were perhaps observed by the spies who looked in at the wine-shop, as they looked in at every place, high and low, from the king's palace to the criminal's jail. Games at cards languished, players at dominoes musingly built towers with them, Drinkers drew figures on the tables with spilt drops of wine. Madame Defarge herself picked out the pattern on her sleeve with her toothpick, and saw and heard something inaudible and invisible a long way off. Thus sat Antoine in this vinous feature of his until midday. It was high noontide, when two dusty men passed through his streets and under his swinging lamps, of whom one was Monsieur Defarge, the other a mender of roads in a blue cap, all a dust and a thirst, the two entered the wine shop. Their arrival had alighted a kind of fire in the breast of Saint Antoine, fast spreading as they came along, which stirred and flickered in flames of faces at most doors and windows. Yet no one had followed them, and no man spoke when they entered the wine shop, though the eyes of every man there were turned upon them. "Good day, gentlemen," said Monsieur Defarge. It may have been a signal for loosening the general tongue. It elicited an answering chorus of, "'Good day!' "'It is bad weather, gentlemen,' said Defarge, shaking his head, upon which every man looked at his neighbour, and then all cast down their eyes, and sat silent, except one man, who got up and went out. "'My wife,' said Defarge aloud, addressing Madame Defarge. I have travelled certain leagues with this good mender of roads, called Jacques. I met him, by accident, a day and a half's journey out of Paris. He is a good child, this mender of roads, called Jacques. Give him to drink, my wife." A second man got up and went out. Madame Defarge set wine before the mender of roads, called Jacques, who doffed his blue cap to the company and drank. In the breast of his blouse he carried some coarse dark bread. He ate of this between whiles, and sat munching and drinking near Madame Defarge's counter. A third man got up, and went out. Defarge refreshed himself with a draught of wine, but he took less than was given to the stranger, as being himself a man to whom it was no rarity, and stood waiting until the countryman had made his breakfast. He looked at no one present, and no one now looked at him—not even Madame Defarge, who had taken up her knitting, and was at work. "'Have you finished your repast, friend?' he asked, in due course. "'Yes, thank you. Come, then. You shall see the apartment that I told you you could occupy. It will suit you to a marvel. Out of the wine-shop into the street, out of the street into a courtyard, out of the courtyard up a steep staircase, out of the staircase into a garret. Formerly, the garret where a white-haired man sat on a low bench, stooping forward and very busy, making shoes. No white-haired man was there now, but the three men were there who had gone out of the wine-shop singly, and between them and the white-haired man afar off was the one small link that they had once looked in at him through the chinks in the wall. Defarge closed the door carefully, and spoke in a subdued voice. Jacques one, Jacques two, Jacques three, this is the witness encountered by appointment by me, Jacques four. He will tell you all. Speak, Jacques five. The mender of roads, blue cap in hand, wiped his swarthy forehead with it, and said, Where shall I commence, monsieur? Commence was Monsieur Defarge's not unreasonable reply, at the commencement. I saw him then, monsieur, began the mender of roads, a year ago this running summer underneath the carriage of the marquis hanging by the chain behold the manner of it i leaving my work on the road the son going to bed the carriage of the marquis slowly ascending the hill he hanging by the chain like this again the mender of roads went through the whole performance in which she ought to have been perfect by that time seeing that it had been the infallible resource and indispensable entertainment of his village during a whole year. Jacques I struck in, and asked if he had ever seen the man before. "'Never,' answered the mender of roads, recovering his perpendicular. Jacques Three demanded how he afterwards recognised him then. "'By his tall figure,' said the mender of roads, softly and with his finger at his nose. "'When Monsieur the Marquis demands that evening, say, what is he like?' I make a response—tall as a spectre. "'You should have said, short as a dwarf,' returned Jacques, too. "'But what did I know? The deed was not then accomplished, neither did he confide in me. Observe! Under those circumstances even I do not offer my testimony. Monsieur the Marquis indicates me with his finger, standing near our little fountain, and says, to me, bring that rascal.' "'My faith, messieurs, I offer nothing.' He is right there, Jacques," murmured Defarge, to him who had interrupted. Go on. Good," said the mender of roads, with an air of mystery. The tall man is lost, and he is sought—how many months? Nine? Ten? Eleven? No matter the number," said Defarge. He is well hidden. But, at last, he is unluckily found. Go on. I am again at work upon the hillside and the sun is again about to go to bed. I am collecting my tools to descend to my cottage down in the village below, where it is already dark, when I raise my eyes, and see coming over the hill six soldiers. In the midst of them is a tall man with his arms bound, tied to his sides, like this. With the aid of his indispensable cap, he represented a man with his elbows bound fast at his hips, with cords that were knotted behind him. I stand aside, messieurs, by my heap of stones, to see the soldiers and the prisoner pass, for it is a solitary road, that, where any spectacle is well worth looking at. And at first, as they approach, I see no more than that they are six soldiers with a tall man bound, and that they are almost black to my sight—except on the side of the sun going to bed, where they had a red edge, messieurs. also. I see that their long shadows are on the hollow ridge on the opposite side of the road, and are on the hill above it, and are like the shadows of giants. Also, I see that they are covered with dust, and that the dust moves with them as they come—tramp, tramp!—but when they advance quite near to me, I recognize the tall man, and he recognizes me. Ah! but he would be well content to precipitate himself over the hillside once again. As on the evening when he and I first encountered close to the same spot. He described it as if he were there, and it was evident that he saw it vividly. Perhaps he had not seen much in his life. I do not show the soldiers that I recognise the tall man. He does not show the soldiers that he recognises me. We do it, and we know it, with our eyes. Come on, says the chief of that company, pointing to the village. Bring him fast to his tomb. And they bring him faster, I follow his arms are swelled because of being bound so tight his wooden shoes are large and clumsy, and he is lame because he is lame and consequently slow. They drive him with their guns like this. He imitated the action of a man's being impelled forward by the butt ends of muskets as they descend the hill like madmen run in a race. He falls, they laugh and pick him up again. His face is bleeding and covered with dust, but he cannot touch it. Thereupon they laugh again. They bring him into the village, all the village runs to look. They take him past the mill, and up to the prison. All the village sees the prison gate open in the darkness of the night, and swallow him. Like this." He opened his mouth as wide as he could, and shut it with a sounding snap of his teeth. Observant of his unwillingness to mar the effect by opening it again, Defarge said, Go on, Jacques. All the village, pursued the mender of roads, on tiptoe and in a low voice, withdraws. All the village whispers by the fountain, all the village sleeps, all the village dreams of that unhappy one within the locks and bars of the prison on the crag, and never to come out of it, except to perish. In the morning, with my tools upon my shoulder, eating my morsel of black bread as i go i make a circuit by the prison on my way to my work there i see him high up behind the bars of a lofty iron cage bloody and dusty as last night looking through he has no hand free to wave to me i dare not call to him he regards me like a dead man defarge and the three glanced darkly at one another the looks of all of them were dark repressed and revengeful as they listened to the countryman's story, the manner of all of them, while it was secret, was authoritative too. They had the air of a rough tribunal. Jacques one and two sitting on the old pallet bed, each with his chin resting on his hand and his eyes intent on the road mender. Jacques three equally intent, on one knee behind them, with his agitated hand always gliding over the network of fine nerves about his mouth and nose. Defarge standing between them and the narrator whom he had stationed in the light of the window, by turns looking from him to them, and from them to him. "'Go on, Jacques,' said Defarge. "'He remains up there in his iron cage some days. The village looks at him by stealth, for it is afraid. But it always looks up, from a distance, at the prison on the crag, and in the evening, when the work of the day is achieved, and it assembles to gossip at the fountain, all faces are turned towards the prison. Formerly, they were turned towards a posting-house. Now they are turned towards the prison. They whisper at the fountain, that although condemned to death, he will not be executed. They say that petitions have been presented in Paris, showing that he was enraged and made mad by the death of his child. They say that a petition has been presented to the King himself. Well, what do I know? It is possible. Perhaps yes, perhaps no. Listen then, Jacques. Number 1 of that name sternly interposed. Know that a petition was presented to the King and Queen. All here, yourself excepted, saw the King take it, in his carriage in the street, sitting beside the Queen. It is Defarge, whom you see here, who, at the hazard of his life, darted out before the horses, with the petition in his hand. And once again listen, Jacques," said the kneeling number 3. His fingers were wandering over and over those fine nerves with a strikingly greedy air, as if he hungered for something, that was neither food nor drink. The guard, horse and foot, surrounded the petitioner, and struck him blows. You hear? I hear, messieurs." "'Go on, then,' said Defarge. "'Again. On the other hand, they whisper at the fountain,' resumed the countryman, "'that he is brought down into our country to be executed on the spot, and that he will very certainly be executed.' They even whisper, that because he has slain Monseigneur, and because Monseigneur was the father of his tenants—serfs—what you will—he will be executed as a parricide. One old man says at the fountain, that his right hand, armed with the knife, will be burnt off before his face, that into wounds, which will be made in his arms, his breast, and his legs, there will be poured boiling oil, melted lead, hot resin, wax, and sulphur. Finally, that he will be torn, limb from limb, by four strong horses. That old man says, all this was actually done to a prisoner who made an attempt on the life of the late King, Louis the Fifteenth. But how do I know if he lies? I am not a scholar." "'Listen once again, then, Jacques,' said the man, with the restless hand and the craving air, "'the name of that prisoner was Damien and it was all done in open day, in the open streets of this city of Paris, and nothing was more noticed in the vast concourse that saw it done, than the crowd of ladies of quality and fashion, who were full of eager attention to the last, to the last, Jacques, prolonged until nightfall, when he had lost two legs and an arm, and still breathed. And it was done. Why, how old are you? Thirty-five, said the mender of Rhodes, who looked sixty. It was done when you were more than ten years old. You might have seen it." "'Enough,' said Defarge, with grim impatience. "'Long live the Devil! Go on.' "'Well, some whisper this, some whisper that. They speak of nothing else. Even the fountain appears to fall to that tune. At length, on Sunday night, when all the village is asleep, come soldiers, winding down from the prison, and their guns ring on the stones of the little street workmen dig workmen hammer soldiers laugh and sing in the morning by the fountain there is raised a gallows forty feet high poisoning the water the mender of roads looked through rather than at the low ceiling and pointed as if he saw the gallows somewhere in the sky all work is stopped all assembly there nobody leads the cows out the cows are there with the rest at midday the roll of drums Soldiers have marched into the prison in the night, and he is in the midst of many soldiers. He is bound as before, and in his mouth there is a gag, tied so, with a tight string, making him look almost as if he laughed. He suggested it by crossing his face with his two thumbs, from the corners of his mouth to his ears. On the top of the gallows is fixed the knife, blade upwards, with its point in the air. He is hanged there, forty feet high, and is left hanging, poisoning the water." They looked at one another, as he used his blue cap to wipe his face, on which the perspiration had started afresh while he recalled the spectacle. "'It is frightful, messieurs. How can the women and the children draw water? Who can gossip of an evening under that shadow? Under it,' have I said. When I left the village, Monday evening, as the sun was going to bed, and looked back from the hill, the shadow struck across the church, across the mill, across the prison, seemed to strike across the earth, messieurs, to where the sky rests upon it. The hungry man gnawed one of his fingers as he looked at the other three, and his finger quivered with the craving that was on him. That's all, messieurs. I left at sunset, as I had been warned to do, and I walked on, that night and half next day, until I met, as I was warned I should, this comrade. With him I came on, now riding, now walking, through the rest of yesterday, and through last night. And here you see me." After a gloomy silence, the first Jacques said, "'Good! you have acted and recounted faithfully. Will you wait for us a little, outside the door?' "'Oh, very willingly,' said the mender of roads, whom Defarge escorted to the top of the stairs, and leaving seated there, returned. The three had risen, and their heads were together when he came back to the garret. "'How say you, Jacques?' demanded Number 1. "'To be registered as doomed to destruction,' returned Defarge. "'Magnificent!' quoted the man with the craving. "'The chateau, and all the race?' inquired the first. "'The chateau, and all the race,' returned Defarge. "'Extermination!' The hungry man repeated, in a rapturous croak, Magnificent, and began gnawing another finger. Are you sure, asked Jacques too of Defarge, that no embarrassment can arise from our manner of keeping the register? without doubt it is safe for no one beyond ourselves can decipher it, but shall we always be able to decipher it, or I ought to say, will she Jacques returned Defarge, drawing himself up. If Madame, my wife, undertook to keep the register in her memory alone, she would not lose a word of it, not a syllable of it. Knitted, in her own stitches and her own symbols, it will always be as plain to her as the sun. Confide in Madame Defarge. It would be easier for the weakest poltroon that lives to erase himself from existence, than to erase one letter of his name or crimes from the knitted register of Madame Defarge." There was a murmur of confidence and approval, and then the man who hungered asked, "'Is this Rustic to be sent back soon?' "'I hope so. He is very simple. Is he not a little dangerous?' "'He knows nothing,' said Defarge, at least nothing more than would easily elevate himself to a gallows of the same height. "'I charge myself with him. Let him remain with me. I will take care of him, and set him on his road.' He wishes to see the fine world—the king, the queen, and court. Let him see them on Sunday." "'What!' exclaimed the hungry man, staring. Is it a good sign, that he wishes to see royalty and nobility?" "'Jacques,' said Defarge, "'judiciously show a cat milk, if you wish her to thirst for it. Judiciously show a dog his natural prey, if you wish him to bring it down one day." Nothing more was said. And the mender of roads, being found already dozing on the topmost stair, was advised to lay himself down on the pallet-bed and take some rest. He needed no persuasion, and was soon asleep. Worse quarters than Defarge's wine-shop could easily have been found in Paris for a provincial slave of that degree. Saving for a mysterious dread of Madame by which he was constantly haunted, his life was very new and agreeable. But Madame sat all day at her counter, so expressly unconscious of him, and so particularly determined not to perceive that his being there had any connection with anything below the surface, that he shook in his wooden shoes whenever his eye lighted on her. For he contended with himself that it was impossible to foresee what that lady might pretend next, and he felt assured, that if she should take it into her brightly ornamented head, to pretend that she had seen him do a murder, and afterwards flay the victim, she would infallibly go through with it, until the play was played out. Therefore, when Sunday came, the mender of roads was not enchanted, though he said he was, to find that Madame was to accompany Monsieur and himself to Versailles. It was additionally disconcerting, to have Madame knitting all the way there, in a public conveyance. It was additionally disconcerting yet, to have Madame in the crowd in the afternoon, still with her knitting in her hands as the crowd waited to see the carriage of the King and Queen. "'You work hard, madame,' said a man near her. "'Yes,' answered Madame Defarge, "'I have a good deal to do. What do you make, madame?' "'Many things.' "'For instance.' "'For instance,' returned Madame Defarge, composedly, "'shrouds.'" The man moved a little farther away, as soon as he could and the mender of roads fanned himself with his blue cap, feeling it mighty close and oppressive. If he needed a king and queen to restore him, he was fortunate in having his remedy at hand, for soon the large-faced king and the fair-faced queen came into their golden coach, attended by the shining bull's-eye of their court. A glittering multitude of laughing ladies and fine lords, and in jewels, and silks, and powder, and splendour, and elegantly spurning figures, and handsomely disdainful faces of both sexes, the mender of rose bathed himself, so much to his temporary intoxication, that he cried, long live the king, long live the queen, long live everybody and everything, as if he had never heard of ubiquitous Jacques in his time. Then there were gardens, courtyards, terraces, fountains, green banks, more king and queen, more bull's-eye, more lords and ladies, more long live they all, until he absolutely wept with sentiment. During the whole of this scene, which lasted some three hours, he had plenty of shouting and weeping in sentimental company, and throughout Defarge held him by the collar, as if to restrain him from flying at the objects of his brief devotion, and tearing them to pieces. "'Bravo!' said Defarge, clapping him on the back when it was over, like a patron. "'You are a good boy!' The mender of Rhodes was now coming to himself, and was mistrustful of having made a mistake in his late demonstrations. "'But no!' "'You are the fellow we want,' said Defarge, in his ear. You make these fools believe that it will last forever. Then they are the more insolent, and it is the nearer ended. "'Hey!' cried the mender of roads, reflectively. "'That's true!' "'These fools know nothing. While they despise your breath, and would stop it for ever and ever, in you or in a hundred like you, rather than in one of their horses or dogs, they only know what your breath tells them. Let it deceive them, then, a little longer. It cannot deceive them too much." Madame Defarge looked superciliously at the clients and nodded in confirmation. "'As to you,' said she, "'you would shout and shed tears for anything, if it made a show and a noise. Say, would you not?' "'Truly, madam, I think so—for the moment. If you were shown a great heap of dolls, and were set upon them to pluck them to pieces, and despoil them for your own advantage, you would pick out the richest and gayest, say, would you not?" "'Truly, yes, madame.' "'Yes. And if you were shown a flock of birds, unable to fly, and were set upon them to strip them of their feathers for your own advantage, you would set upon the birds of the finest feathers, would you not?' "'It is true, madame.' You have seen both dolls and birds to-day said Madame Defarge with a wave of her hand towards the place where they had last been apparent. Now go home End of part five.